Computer science concepts like data structures and algorithms can be super intimidating, especially if you're cramming the night before an interview. In this episode, we'll discuss common algorithms and data structures and give you some tips for your next whiteboarding challenge. Welcome to the Ladybug Podcast. I'm Kelly. I'm Allie. And I'm Emma. And we're debugging the tech industry. Hey, Kelly, have you heard about this cool tool called AWS Amplify? Tell me about it. It's a suite of tools and services that enables developers to build full-stack, serverless, and cloud-based web and mobile apps. You get to use whichever framework or technology you want on the front end. That sounds cool. Will it help me get up and running with things like hosting? Yeah. Authentication? You betcha. Manage GraphQL? Totally. How about serverless functions, APIs, machine learning, chatbots, file storage? Yes to everything! Amplify is built especially in a way to enable traditionally front-end developers, like yourself, Kelly, to be successful because you can use your existing skill set to build real-world, full-stack apps that in the past would require deep knowledge around back-end, DevOps, and scalable infrastructure. The Amplify console also allows you to use a GitHub repository to deploy to a globally available CDN with CI and CD built-in. Super cool. Where can I learn more? If you want to learn more about AWS Amplify, visit aws-amplify.github.io. We want to ask you a quick favor before we get started. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps new people find out about the show. Each week, we'll select one reviewer to win a book from Smashing Magazine, which we're super excited about. So let's get started with the, the episode. Let's first talk about our experience with data structures and algorithms. And I want to start with Kelly here. I think Kelly is an expert in it, right? Yeah, I'm an absolute expert. Actually, no, okay. I have zero experience with this. So when we Would were- you say you have big zero experience with it? I tried to make a tech joke and it didn't work because it's big O notation. I was going to, you, you just threw me it's off fine. because I don't know anything. <laughs> I, so. I realized that after I made the joke. <laughs> So yeah, this episode is kind of fun for me because I have never had a pro- like experience the proper whiteboarding interview, and because I run my own company, I'm not going to interview myself. So I don't know any of this, and I'm really excited to basically have a teach Kelly everything about algorithms and data structures episode. I'm excited for it too. I started my career at IBM, so I, I went through. I wouldn't say it was a whiteboarding interview for my first full-time role, but once I got there and I interviewed um, internally for different teams, I actually went through the whiteboarding process then as an employee, which was strange. Um, I interviewed at Google as well, and I've interviewed at other companies like Facebook and um, other larger companies. But most recently, uh, I work at LogMeIn, which is it's not a huge company, uh, but I still did do some semblance of live coding. It just wasn't to the extreme of like a Google or Facebook. Awesome. So for me, I actually dropped out of computer science for the data structures and algorithms class. It's like a very famous weed out class across colleges. And I did actually okay grade wise in the class, but I was putting in so much work and everybody had so much more experience than me. And I felt like computer science just wasn't for me based off of this class, but I ended up self-teaching it after that. And I have also interviewed at Google and, um, a couple of other big companies, but I I don't like interviewing, so I don't I don't do it. You know how you get out of interviewing? You just don't change jobs. 
You just That's start a your own path to success, uh-huh. Kelly. Great <laughs> career advice. Um, Thank I you. Also for, I forgot to say, I actually went to school for computer science. So like technically I have a degree in this. So, like I, I went to all the coursework. <laughs> I mean, that's like kind of a big deal in the sense that like I should have mentioned that when you asked what my experience is, but I didn't even think about it. So I technically went to school for this. I will say while I learned it in school, I didn't retain much of the information and had to kind of relearn it as I had to interview. So I'm excited to, to walk through some of that today. You know, for some yeah. reason, they, they didn't teach this in my psychology undergrad. What? What? I know. Why? <laughs> they should have just dropped, the, like, the Freud conversations or, like, the, the, the B.F. Skinner conversations and thrown Look at you dropping people. famous names in psychology. I took, I took IB psychology. I was thinking about being a psych major, and then I went into this, which means that I employ lots of psychologists. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, we all just read Atomic Habits, which uh, talks about Skinner a lot. That's so. a good point. Yeah, it does. To be fair, <laughs> operant conditioning is real. So that was a shameless yeah. plug for our book club because we're reading Atomic Habits as our first book, which by the time this episode is published, it's already out. So you should go listen to it. Oh, yeah. Is it? I don't know if oh, it is. Wow. We'll find out. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. We'll find out. In any case, know. why don't we actually talk <laughs> about the things we said we were going to talk about? Okay, awesome. So I wanted to start off with talking about what algorithms are. R, and I'll give it a TLDR, or too long to read short answer of what an algorithm is. So an algorithm is a standard way of solving a problem, and there are usually multiple different algorithms that you can use to solve any problem. Some are better than others. They're essentially a step-by-step solution. People use the analogy of a recipe a lot, that the algorithm is like a recipe for solving some sort of problem. Um, These can be implemented across programming languages, so you don't need to just use JavaScript to solve these or C++ or anything like that, in theory, you should be able to solve them or implement them across different programming languages. So I think that's really good. And I think the concept of a recipe is very straightforward. And I think the way I learned it was discussing how to make a sandwich, like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, because if you are not very explicit in your instructions to a computer, they are not going to know what you're talking about. And so algorithms are really the steps that you take to solve a problem. Um, And with all of these different steps, um, there are implications in regards to time and space, like how how much memory you're using, as well as the runtime performance of your algorithms. And you've probably heard in the ecosystem these terms floating around. Now, big O is the most popular. So we'll discuss that one in a second. But there are also two others. And those are big omega and big theta. So we'll give some high level definitions. Um, Big O is the one that you're probably most familiar with. And this is an asymptotic uh, limit, right? I think it's like the limit. So as you increase the input size to your algorithm, the data size, how fast does your algorithm grow in regards to performance? Does it also cover space and time or is it just for performance? Both space and time. Um, So the big reason that we use big O notation is that it's really hard to generalize the efficiency of an algorithm. If I say that my, this program runs in one second on my computer, it could run very differently on somebody's cell phone. It could run very differently on some massive server or supercomputer somewhere. And also with different inputs, like if you have an array with two items in it or an array with a thousand items in it or an array with two billion items in it, that algorithm is going to take a very different amount of time to run. And so big O notation is a way of standardizing how we describe the efficiency of that algorithm. So ignore the input size, ignore the 
computer that it's running on, how is this going to scale as we have more and more inputs to that algorithm? So it's a way of generalizing these. And we use like families of efficiency too instead of seconds or anything like that. So there are different big of families that different algorithms fall into. Kelly, can you tell that Allie is a teacher? No, <laughs> never, never would have guessed. No, it's, it was a really clear explanation. Um, so Big O is, is the one that's most notable because I believe it describes like the worst case runtime. Yeah, we're being super pessimistic when we use Big O notation. We're thinking about only the worst case scenario, which ugh. sounds like a really good yeah. fit for me. Yeah, right. But in in um in contrast, big omega is the asymptotic lower bound. So this is like at least it's going to be this um performant, uh, I believe, right? And then when we talk about big theta, it talks about the does this algorithm kind of fit between this upper bound and this lower bound? So does it fit between big O and big omega? Yeah, those ones I have really not used. I, I studied them when I was studying for Google. But other than that, have not really looked too deep yeah. into those. If you're studying, I would only focus on big O. Don't focus on big omega or big theta. But it is generally good to understand that there are different kinds of bounds when we talk about algorithms. Um, and there's a really great chart. Uh, we'll link it in the show notes. It's the big O complexity chart. And it describes the runtime of different big O notations. So if we think about something like and factorial, where you're taking, let's say, a number. Let's take five. Factorial means you multiply it by every number that precedes it. So five times four times three times two times one. And the big O of that is pretty damn high. <laughs> like, that's a really <laughs> bad runtime for your algorithm. If, uh, you know, if you have 100 items, that's that's a huge Huge number, right? So that's going to be a horrible runtime versus something like O of N. As you increase the number of inputs to your algorithm, it's just going to be, um, what is it, linear? Is that what we call O of N, linear? Yeah, linear time. So something like doing a single for loop would be O of N. If you have 100 items in an array and are looping through it, it's going to run 100 times. If you have one item in the array, it's going to run one time. If you have 1,000 items, it's going to run 1,000 times. So that's O of N, where it runs the same amount of time as the number of inputs you have. O of 1 is constant, which means that no matter what your input is, it's only doing one thing. So if you're passing in an array with a thousand items, it's still just console logging hello world or something along those lines. I'm using JavaScript terms. I don't know why I'm using JavaScript terms, but um, I guess I'm spending too much of my life in JavaScript world right now. Yeah, constant time is kind of like what we all shoot for, right? And this would be something like a variable assignment. So like var x equals one. This It doesn't matter how much data we're passing our algorithm. This is just going to be a constant time. Um and what we do is we we essentially walk through all the lines in our algorithm, whether that's a function. Let's say we have a function and it has a variable declaration. Let's say it says var x equals one. And then we have a for loop that says, you know, from zero to n, um, I don't know, just console log the value of n. Something very simple. What we do is we essentially walk through all the lines in our code and we see what is the big O runtime for this. Well, we just stated our variable declaration is constant time because it doesn't depend on our input. But our for loop, like Ali just explained, is going to run n time so that's linear or yeah linear time i'm totally getting tripped up now um <laughs> and what we do is we we essentially look at which is the worst big o runtime our for loop is going to run more times than our our constant time declaration and that's as a result the worst or the most in unperformant um 
within our algorithm. And as a result, this is going to be the value that we take. So we don't even care about anything that's more performant. We don't care about our constant time variable declaration. All we care about is the fact that our for loop is going to run n times. So our overall runtime for our entire algorithm is the worst case, which is O of n. Yeah. And on top of that, we can drop the coefficients and the constants. So if you are doing something like 3n plus 1 times or something like that, that would just be n efficiency. Um, You can simplify it down to those kind of families instead of getting real niche there. And these are, this is very confusing, especially for beginners to understand why do we drop the constants? Why do we take like the worst big O value? Um, And we're not going to go into all the, the little secrets and nuances of calculating the performance, the runtime of these things, but we're going to link some really good resources for you down in the show notes. Yes, it's going to check out those resources. Hence, it's me. <laughs> Kelly, could you now reiterate exactly what we just told you? Like, I'm kidding, but do you actually have, like, do, do you have a little bit better understanding when we say big O, do you understand what that means? Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. I think what's, I, what's maybe throwing me is, am I having to manually calculate this out? So you would look at your code or look at the the algorithm, the recipe for the code that you're going to write, and you, based off of that code, you would infer the big O family that that algorithm or your piece of code falls into. So if there's a for loop, then it's probably n. If it's a nested for loop, it's probably n squared. Uh, okay. There are kind of these patterns that you notice, and you use those to group your algorithms or your your uh, code into these big O families. Okay, that makes more sense. And we just need to be clear that like when we say O of N, N is really just the upper bound, right? So like in a sense, so let me explain that. So when we have a for loop, we do like for let I equal zero, I is less than N, I plus plus. Well, in this case, for I is less than N, it's going to run N times. If we change that to, I don't know, K, it would be O of K. So it's just like an arbitrary value that we are setting for things. And this gets more... Um, this becomes more important when we have nested for loops. And this is going to kind of lead us into our first algorithm, um, which is called bubble sort, which you may or may not have heard of. It is a sorting algorithm. So if we have an array of different integers, we want to sort them from the lowest to the highest, for example. And bubble sort is notoriously bad in terms of big O performance. And you'll hear it it's going to be called O of N squared because for every single element in this array, you have to compare it to every other element. So you're doing N times N comparisons. You're running through that list for each item, comparing it to every other item. So that's where we get the O of N squared. But in cases where you have nested for loops that are on different numbers or like a different set of numbers with different values. Um, Let's say we have two arrays. One is of size five and one is of size seven. If we have two nested for loops, one is the outer one, for example, would run five times and the inner one would run seven times. And you can't just say that's O of N squared because those are two different values, right? So you would have to assign different ones. So like O of um, N, M, for example, because they're two different values. Yeah. Sorting algorithms are a really common family of algorithms to know. I, For me, I heard the rule that you're supposed to know two good sorting algorithms for interviewing. I don't know if you all have heard that rule either. Um, but so I mostly memorized like merge sort and quick sort when I was interviewing. Yeah, I would say that's right. Like bubble sort is really something you would just learn is in terms of like, why is it so bad? And why is it such a joke that like even famous people with zero technical knowledge understand how bad it is? Um, yeah, if you're starting out or if you're practicing for a whiteboard interview, I would recommend knowing merge sort and quick sort. 
And those are primarily due to the fact that they are divide and conquer algorithms and not like brute force algorithms, if that makes sense. I don't know if that's the proper term for them, but um, the essentially is you're breaking down the problem into smaller and smaller partitions um, until you can't divide it into any smaller partitions. And then you build it back up. So divide it first and then conquer it second. Yeah, definitely. And you're breaking the problem into smaller, smaller problems until the problem is easily solvable and then you're putting the arrays back together. Um, bubble sort is probably the one that you, if you were to ask a brand new coder how to sort an array, that would probably be how they would do it because it's a really brute force, force, <laughs> brute force algorithm. Words are so hard. Um, I am also going to link in the show notes this really awesome visualizer that shows all these different algorithms and visualizes them really, really well. So I am going to link that in the show notes. I think that that's really great, especially for these sorting algorithms. Yeah, for sure. And we just mentioned a couple. So bubble sort to visualize it. Just take, let's say we start at the, the first element in array. Let's say it's a four. Um, compare it to the next item to its right. And let's say it's a seven. Well, seven is greater than four. So at that point, we don't need to switch them. They're already in their order. But if we move up to the seven now, well, what's the item to the right? Let's say it's a three. Well, seven is larger than three. So we have to swap them. And we do this until seven gets to its proper position. Or, you know, and like I said, you have to compare every element against each other. So this is very uh, non-performant. And versus like a merge sort or a quick sort, like Ali said, you break this problem into smaller and smaller parts until you can't anymore. So like merge sort, you would divide each. So take our big array, divide it in two, and then take the left half and divide it in two until you can't divide any of these arrays anymore until they're all just single elements. And that's the point where we start to sort them and say, oh, is the left one greater than the right one? If it is, swap them. Otherwise, just merge it back. So like, yeah, we'll, we'll link some of these in the show notes. It's really hard to like explain visualizations over a podcast. I didn't expect that. Yeah, it's super hard. So let's just say that merge sort and quick sort are probably the ones that you'll see most often in an interview type setting. And those would be the ones that I would learn if I were to learn two of these. Absolutely. Awesome. Other types of algorithms that I have seen a lot, and I know Google really likes these is graph traversal algorithms. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk about what graphs are in the data structure section, but essentially they're a data structure that allows you to have relationships between data in any sort of way. And graph traversal algorithms are for moving from one data item to another data item and a lot of trying to find like the shortest paths between things like think about Google Maps, all of that runs on graph traversal algorithms. And so those will be things that you would most likely see a lot if you're going to be interviewing, especially at the big companies right now. Yeah. And you can take the example, the traveling salesman is a very popular, well-known problem. This is, I believe, a graph traversal where um, you have a salesman who needs to visit, I don't know, seven houses, let's say. And there are different paths to get between each house. Um, and each path has a weight to it. It has a, a different length. Um, how can he actually traverse all of these houses visiting each house once in the shortest time possible or the shortest distance possible? So that, that would be a, a graph traversal. Or if you think about a practical example, um, FedEx or you know the UPS or DHL or whatever package delivery service that you use, they need to optimize their deliveries, especially during the holidays. Um, that's a very popular time for shipping packages. And how do they actually optimize this path? That's a, a graph traversal type of problem. Definitely. Another one is a searching algorithm. So going through a data structure and trying to find an element within it, um, that's something that you may see as well. 
I have gotten binary search questions in interviews before. Um, binary searching is when an array is sorted. You can search within it, within smaller and smaller sections of it, finding the midpoint of that smaller section and seeing if your item that you're searching for is greater than or less than that point that you're searching for and only then search that segment of the array. And this only works for sorted arrays, but uh, it's a very common algorithm and something that you might see. So I wanted to flag that as well. Okay, so we've talked a lot about algorithms but they kind of relate really well to some of these data structures. Like we can't talk about graph traversal without talking about graphs. So let's just jump right into talking data structures. Now, certain programming languages have, I don't know, the data structures can kind of change from language to language. This, this could be a little bit tricky for us to discuss this. So I think as some of these differences show while we're talking about these things, um, let's kind of denote them. So let's just, let me bring up an example. So if, when we talk about arrays, arrays are a very common data structure. And what's interesting is that in JavaScript, arrays are, they're not a finite length, so you can just keep adding elements to an array. Versus in a language like Java, arrays have a fixed size. So you actually have to declare the size that it's at instantiation, and you can't put anything other than that limit, that number of items into your array. I think there's also array list, which is not a fixed size. It's a variable size. That, that would be more like a JavaScript array. But yeah, I would say arrays are, are probably like the base arrays and objects together are probably the two most common data structures, but just be aware that they do kind of change in be terms of behavior across languages. Yeah. And so when we talk about these data structures and we're comparing whether you should use one for a certain use case or not, we're going to go back to that big O discussion. So a lot of the operations that you might do with an any data structure would be insertion, so adding a new item to it, deletion, removing an item from it, searching it, trying to find an item within it, um, sorting it, trying to put it in order. Anything else that I'm missing? Uh, I can't think so. Oh, accessing, accessing. So getting one item out of that data Isn't structure. Isn't that search? Oh, I guess that's not searching. Yeah, they are different. So those would be common uh, operations. And so when we're talking about these, um, that's going to come into play and decide whether you should be using one data structure or another. Absolutely. So let's get started. Let's just start with arrays because it's the most alphabetically, uh, it starts with the letter A. I don't know <laughs> how to English. Well, and plus I, most people are probably going to know what arrays are. So I think they're a good one to start with. If you're, if you're, Code. I think it's also, you know, worth noting, like, I, again, I don't really know from, like, the big O standpoint what all these things are, but I'm very familiar with a lot of these data structures. So I think my my base knowledge of what arrays and objects are and things like that are going to be really cool to see, okay, what's actually going to be best to use. Kelly, what's your favorite data structure? I'm not answering that question. Oh, what? You, you like hash I maps, use don't you? I know you're a hash <laughs> map kind of girl. No, I use uh, objects a lot. Key value pairs are my jam. They're Don't tell me they're not performance or you will like break my heart. They are. And in JavaScript, yeah. especially like objects are a great, great everything. Okay, good. Yeah. So let's talk about arrays. So arrays are essentially container objects that holds a number of values. In Java, that is a fixed number of values. In JavaScript, which is, I'm going to be referring to JavaScript because that's what I primarily work in these days. But maybe, Al, you can give some information on the Python side of things or, you know, a back end of your language. Um, in terms of inserting something into an array in JavaScript, it's constant time. It's O of 1. Yeah, with arrays, there's 
there's this concept of abstract data structures. So abstract data structures are um, essentially like sets of rules for how data structures are implemented. They're like the concept of a data structure and you could implement them across languages. And so traditionally arrays were these things that you could not add to without moving them in memory. Like they were really efficient because you could put them all in one contiguous block of memory or one piece of memory altogether on your computer. And that's changed over time with more dynamic languages where instead of storing the actual item at that index in the array in the memory of your computer instead of storing a reference and that allows you to add more dynamic information and different types of data to that array and so that's how that's evolved over time with more dynamic languages like javascript and so um Traditionally, adding an item to an array was an O of N operation because you had to copy that whole entire array into a new block of memory. Um, but again, these more dynamic languages like JavaScript, they actually pre-allocate memory, so you have extra space to add new items to the array, and it becomes closer to O of 1. You sound so smart because you are smart. I like no, that. That's a pretty good reason. I don't know. These things like fascinate me. I, yeah. I don't know why. And they're not things that we necessarily use every day as developers. Right. But I think understanding the the under the core of programming language is something that just fascinates me. And maybe someday I can build my own language. Probably not. But wow. that's okay. That's a lot of work. That sounds like a lot of work. I, I think agree. my heart just started racing at the thought of doing that. This um, big O cheat sheet that I'm linking in the show notes has common data structure operations. So it basically is a table of all of our different data structures, and it tells you uh, how much time or what the big O runtime for accessing, searching, insertion, deletion, those kinds of things are in the average and in the worst cases. So um, just to kind of like wrap up arrays. So we said accessing is approximately like O of 1 for JavaScript um, or in general now. Searching would be O of N because think about it. If you're searching for a value and it's not in the array, that means you've searched every single element or O of N, right? That's the worst case scenario. It's not in there. Uh, to insert, um, I don't, well, insertion we said was O of N. Yeah, of- insertion is close to O of N. Yeah. But in programming languages like JavaScript, it's more efficient than that. Correct. Yeah. And same with deletion, I would say. Yeah. Our next one is going to be linked lists, which are one of my favorite <laughs> data structures. <laughs> I wrote a blog post last year um, correlating linked lists to Ariana Grande's "Thank You Next," and got some intent, got some uh, interest on the the internet. But had a lot of fun with it, and linked lists have kind of become one of my favorite data structures as a result. I will say, like that that post, which we will definitely be linking in the show notes was really helpful for me to understand linked lists as well. well so you lied you. to us. You do have knowledge. I told you. <laughs> I know these data structures, but the technical stuff behind it, I do not know. I know how to use things. I don't know why I'm using things. How so about you're that? up for the, next, for the next data structure, then, Kelly. I don't you're think on so. No, I'm not. Do not put me on the – no. No, we're not playing that game. So, Allie, <laughs> can, you, can you tell me more about what a linked list is? So a linked list is actually technically – graph data structure. We'll talk about what graphs are in a little bit. And what that means is that it has nodes and edges. Nodes are pieces of information. Edges are references to the next item in the linked list in this this case. So each item has a piece of data. And then it also says, okay, my next piece of data is stored at this piece in memory. Go look for my next piece of data there. Um, 
And these are really efficient because, again, like we said with arrays, they had to be stored in one contiguous block of memory. So you had to have all the amount of memory in one place on your computer in order to create an array. Linked lists, they can be stored all across your memory in your computer. And so um, instead of having to remove every single item when you insert to that array, um, instead with linked lists, insertion and deletion is an O of one operation where it's really efficient to add a new item to that linked list. So that's why linked lists are used. Um, they're especially useful if you're trying to access data in a sequence. So if you're trying to always access the data in the same order, you're not trying to access items or anything like that, then a linked list could be great for that. The one thing with them is that they don't have indexing like arrays do. So accessing one individual item is much more difficult. So if you're trying to do that, you should go with an array instead. I will say like you can have pointers though, which is super nice. So what that means is if you want to search for an element, you can have a left pointer and a right pointer that start on opposite ends of your list and they each migrate inward towards each other. So in half the amount of time, you can see whether or not an item is found in that list, which is really cool. That's a, that's a good benefit of using a linked list. Definitely. There are two types of linked lists, singly linked lists, where each node just has a reference to the next item in that linked list. And then there's also uh, doubly linked lists where each node po uh, points to the previous node and the next one. Absolutely. Cool. So let's move on and let's talk about sets. So I actually don't know too much about sets, but they are quite useful if you are trying to store a set of unique values. So they can be primitive values or object references, primitive meaning like, um, I don't know, like integers or, or strings. Um, so yeah, they let you store unique values of any type. I believe like if you pass it in like a list of values and there are duplicates, it'll just remove them, right? Yeah. Sets are my most underrated data structure. They're one of my favorites. And the reason for that is that searching in them is super, super performant. So it's oh, roughly O of 1 to search a set, whereas searching an array or a linked list is going to be closer to O of N. And so if you're trying to see if an item is in a collection of data, using a set is the best option there because it's really, really efficient. So doing code challenges... Uh, like with massive data sets, things like Google's CodeGM or Advent of Code, sets come in handy so much in those types of challenges. So sets are super useful and you should definitely be aware of them if you're going to have a whiteboarding uh, challenge. And with that, let's kind of transition into talking about objects, maps, and heaps because they're all pretty similar. Um, so objects are just a collection of key value pairs, and we use them for a lot of things, especially in JavaScript because JavaScript uses prototypal inheritance. So Kelly, do you want to explain how you use objects in your day-to-day -day programming life since that, I think, is probably your favorite data structure? <laughs> I already said it is. Um, so in in the case of, of Shopify and the theme development that we do, all of the product data is all stored within an object. So all of, you have like the key value pairs, so you know the product title, the product description, the product price, and so on. So you can grab a very specific uh, value within that uh, that key value pair to display it wherever you need to do that. Um, and there are there are like objects within objects as well, which I'm not going to go into because then it's Nobody cares about the the details of how 
everything is set up on Shopify, but I use these very regularly. Awesome. So those are objects. And then there are also maps. I don't know, Emma, you might be able to correct me on this, but I see maps as pretty much the same thing as objects just within um, different languages. That being said, maps, uh, remember the original insertion order, which dictionaries now do in Python by default. JavaScript objects don't. So that's one difference between um, maps and objects. But for the most part, they're they're pretty similar. Out of curiosity, is there a particular benefit for remembering the original insertion order? If you want to iterate through them in a certain order, then it becomes handy there. Okay. Or you have them sorted in some sort of way. So if you want your um, object to be sorted alphabetically and output it alphabetically or something like that, then uh, having a map where the insertion order is there for you, that becomes helpful. Okay. I'm honestly kind of curious, like, why even bother at that point? Why didn't they just build it into objects? Like, it doesn't really seem like it makes that much sense to have a separate data structure for that. Although I think for the key, you can have primitive and objects as the actual key, which is very interesting. So that's another difference from plain objects. But I'm just kind of curious, like, why do they split that into another data structure in JavaScript? I don't know. I'm pretty sure that they're more memory efficient, like objects are more memory efficient. Um, And so then uh, maps then would become less memory efficient. It also may be less performant to search for items as well um, in maps relative to objects. Actually, really an interesting conversation because uh, Python dictionaries, which are analogous to objects in JavaScript, um, they used to not preserve search or input order like objects do in JavaScript. Um, But they actually recently, with a new version of Python, made it so that the insertion order is there. So now, I guess, Python dictionaries are maps instead of objects. Awesome. So... Let's move on to heaps. I don't know that much about heaps, to be honest. And I think I previously said that they were similar to objects, but I think that's incorrect. They're actually, it's a tree-based data structure. Trees are data structures where there is a parent node. Again, a node is a piece of data. And then they have children. So it's a hierarchical data structure, whereas most of our other data structures that we've talked about have been linear, where you kind of can iterate through them or um, move through them in a linear way. Instead these trees are hierarchical where one has a hierarchy over another. They're like parent and children, kind of like the DOM in HTML, or sorry, not the DOM in HTML, but like the DOM in JavaScript or uh, HTML where there's a a parent tag and then children tags within that. That would count as a tree or your file structure on your computer. You may hear that as the file tree. And there are a couple more specific types of trees. Um, One of these is a heap, which allows you to get uh, the maximum values or the minimum values and have them in a sorted manner. Binary trees are also a really common one. Uh, These ones are where each parent can only have two children. A lot of times you'll see binary search trees, which allows you to sort data uh, really well through that and then access the data in that sorted order. So as an FYI, I had an interview question to check whether a binary tree had a broken edge, so whether there was a cycle in the binary search tree. And so if you have a whiteboarding interview coming up, I would highly recommend knowing binary trees, binary search trees really, really well, especially if you're not doing a front-end interview. If you're doing a back-end interview, 
cannot recommend learning them enough. And even if you are doing a front end interview, I would still be familiar with them. Um, I'm going to link in the show notes a really great egghead course that was done by Kyle Shevlin, where he actually builds all of these different data structures with JavaScript. And I cannot tell you how much that helped me in understanding binary trees, as well as some of the one the data structures we're going to talk about in just a second. So two related data structures that you'll hear talked about uh in conjunction with each other a lot are stacks and queues. Um, And these are data structures where you access the data in a certain order. Stacks are like a stack of books where if you put a book on top of the stack, that's the book that you're going to take off first, or maybe a stack of plates. So they're all glass or they're all like ceramic or glass. And if you take one out of the middle that'll break all the other ones. Well, that's not true because I do that all the time at home when I'm too lazy. <laughs> I just pull out the middle one, but that's not how it works in the data world. I love how, yeah. I know this is a tangent, but like you're too lazy. So you use more effort to pull out a plate from the middle of the stack. Oh, that's a really good analogy. Yeah. Is it an analogy or is it just Kelly being lazy? Uh, but. My, no, my, my whole thing is that it, it takes more effort. So why why can you say you're being lazy? Because I can't physically hold all of the plates on top of the plate that I want to get to. Is that plate special? Is it like your, your Disney print plate or something? Well, don't you ever stack like smaller plates on bigger plates? And then sometimes you need a bigger plate, but it's under all the smaller plates. They're in different yeah. stacks. But okay. You just have to be really careful in that case. Well, some of us in Europe don't have large kitchens like you, Kelly. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Anyway, the, sorry. Can, no, no, <laughs> no. The other analogy that people always use is if you remember in elementary school, they have or at, at cafeterias in general, I guess they have those like stacks of trays, and you can take one off uh, the top, and they kind of all like pop up a little bit, and then you can put one on the top, and they all kind of sink down a little bit. I like anyway, that. Remember yeah, yeah, that? I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. Those are cool. Just making sure. Yeah, super fancy. So I hear that as an analogy for stacks all the time. And so the methods that you'll see on those stacks are push, pop, and peek. Push is for adding a new item. Pop is for taking one off. And peek is for checking to see which is the next item that would be coming off of it. I don't think I've ever used peek before. And what's the big O runtime for these? So like to add a new item, it's just O of one, right? It's just constant time, right? So it depends on how you implement them, actually. So usually under the hood, you're going to use a linked list. And in that case, then it would be O of one. That being said, I see a lot of People also implement them with like arrays. And in that case, you would take on the efficiency of the array. So it'd be closer to O of N. So just to be clear, stacks and queues are not indigenous data types in a language. You actually have to build them out with other data structures. I'm sorry, not they're not data types. They're not indigenous data structures. So like you wouldn't have like a stack or a queue data structure in JavaScript. You physically have to build them, whether that's with like I don't know, like Kyle Shevlin in his course, I think builds them as functions and you have different um, functions within that, or he builds them as classes or something like that. So we have a class for a stack and then within that you have push, pop, peak, um, and, and then how you actually implement it. Like you said, Ali, could be with a linked list, could be with an array. Definitely. And that's the same, the, the same is true for a lot of these is that they're like more of these abstract data types or abstract data structures where, um, they're not implemented in every single programming languages and they might look a little bit different across them. So same thing with like trees and um, 
up until recently sets in JavaScript, though now JavaScript has sets too. Absolutely. So speaking of stacks and queues, let's talk about the second half of that, which is queues. They're very, very similar to stacks with the exception of the, the order that things are kind of like removed. So queues are a first and first out data structure. So we can think of a queue as simply a queue or a line to buy a movie ticket. So the person who's been waiting the longest is closer to actually being able to buy the ticket than the person who just joined the line. So the first person who gets in the line is going to be the first person who is serviced. You can also build this using arrays or linked lists, but the methods that you use are going to be a little bit different. They're called NQ, DQ, and peak. Again, peak is just show me the, the item that's next up to be popped off essentially i shouldn't use the word pop show me the next item that's (laughs) going to be the next dq'd item um but essentially it's to insert and remove items they just have different terminology awesome and a lot of these data structures that we've been talking about fall under the category of graphs and graphs are data structures that have nodes and edges Uh, nodes are pieces of data edges are references to other nodes. And so uh, queues, anything that's implemented with a linked list falls under that graph category. Same thing with these trees, they fall under the graph category as well. Um, I think a lot of the recent developments and the kind of first frontiers right now of computer science are going under graphs. Yeah, absolutely. I think they're a great um, type of data structure to know. And honestly, once you kind of understand the paradigm of using graphs, um, it's you're really going to enjoy using them and you're going to understand why they're more efficient than others. And you're going to recognize use cases as they become apparent in your day-to-day work. Definitely. So that's really a high-level introduction to all of the data structures and algorithms that you may or may not encounter in a whiteboarding interview. Um, And we'll link again some really great resources down in the show notes for you. And when we talk about whiteboarding interviews, things that you should know for those, you should know the basic data structures, some of the ones that we've covered, like objects, arrays, linked lists. I would recommend knowing stacks and queues as well as as graphs and trees. Um, And then, you know, we mentioned earlier that if you're going to know a couple of sorting algorithms, you should definitely know to maybe like merge sort and quick sort. Um, But you're also going to want to be familiar with recursion, which isn't something that we've talked about in this podcast. But Ali, do you want to give a quick overview of recursion? Yeah. So recursion is when a function calls itself within itself. So you're continuously calling the same function. Um, Usually this is so that you can break a problem into smaller problems and then solve that smaller problem with the same sort of function. Um, You have problems that kind of repeat themselves. Recursion is great for that. My caveat with recursion is that it's always going to be less efficient than using a while loop. And you can always use a while loop or like potentially a for loop in place of recursion. Recursion is just another way of looping. And the thing with recursion is that it needs to take up space on the call stack if your programming languages uses a call stack to hold function calls. And so this leads to things like stack overflows, which is when you have too many function calls on that call stack and it can no longer uh, keep doing that. And so I have had people in interviews in the past tell me not to use recursion, but sometimes people will tell you to refactor to use recursion. It's usually more programmer friendly to use recursion. Usually the implementation is a little bit cleaner and uh, clearer there. That being said, uh, for the 
computer, in most programming languages, it's going to be more efficient to use looping. The exception to that being functional programming languages. A lot of functional programming languages have what's called tail call optimization built in, and that means that recursion is more efficient in those. That being said, that's not the case in JavaScript or Python, which are the languages we've been talking about mostly. So recursion is going to be less efficient in those languages than um, using loops. I have one additional note to add about recursion. If you've never done a Google search for recursion, I highly recommend it. <laughs> Let us know if you do that and, and tell us your thoughts. Um, also, as a quick note, merge sort is going to be one of those algorithms that typically you'll see recursion in. Um, it recursively breaks down the problem until you get to the base case, which is another like important facet of recursion is you have to have a base case say you know recursively call myself until i hit this condition if you forget a base case you're going to hit stack overflow and and everything's going to break it's going to be horrible um so it's important to understand recursion it can be tricky but highly recommend learning it um and then just a few other tips for your interviews so one thing that i was taught early is to speak what's in your mind because the interviewer you might know what's in your mind the interviewer is not going to know what you're thinking so definitely if you have something in your mind that you're thinking about tell them what you're thinking um and ask for clarification if you're uncertain about things because often these these whiteboarding questions that they give you there are different pieces of information they have explicitly left out because they want you to question it they want you to think about the problem find um you know different areas that they haven't explicitly told you about and ask them so those are two what about um you kelly and Allie? like what tips would you give people for interviews i have one that goes you know beyond basically for any kind of interview if you're not sure about something say you're not sure that's totally fine instead of like coming up with a an answer that doesn't actually make sense where you don't really know what you're talking about, it is totally okay to be like, I'm not sure, but I maybe approach the, the issue this way and see what would work or see if it would work. That's totally fine. I'm a little surprised Kelly said no bullshitting. I didn't say it. Well, you didn't, but it's inferred. No, it's just the premise of like, if you're not sure, don't BS things, right? Like just admit it. Like there's no shame. And actually when I was at IBM, I had a manager tell me that one of the the biggest things that he saw in candidates i think that one of the reasons candidates weren't getting hired is they tried to bs an answer not knowing if it was correct or not but they acted like they knew it was correct um and so don't bs your way through something like just openly admit you don't know but take educated guesses yeah and you can also show a really good growth mindset there too of i don't know this yet but i am i love learning new things and i know this related thing and can use that knowledge to further my knowledge and learn that thing that you asked me about or something like that. Like show that you're willing to learn and excited to learn and that just because you don't know this one thing, it's not going to limit you on the job. Another one is take a, take a moment to really think about your answer before just immediately jumping in. It's okay to pause. You know, it might feel like an awkward pause to you, but if it's useful to be gathering your thoughts before giving an answer, again, totally fine. And you know, the interviewer may be like, they may, you know, in the pause, they may be like, do you need like guidance or whatever? And you could say, no, I'm ready to go now. You know, whatever, whatever happens, it doesn't really matter. But point being, don't feel rushed to immediately answer every single question the moment it's asked. Definitely. I also think writing pseudocode as a first step is a good idea, um, unless they tell you specifically not to do that. But writing out your thoughts in plain English and thinking about the steps that you might take to solve a problem could be a really great first step. You know, it's super funny to me is I had a, an interview with a very well-known company who's notorious for giving very hard whiteboarding interviews, and I did that. I wrote pseudocode on the whiteboard before going to the 
the computer that they had given me. And one of the pieces of feedback they gave me was that I took too long to physically write the code. Like they, like I spent too long pseudo coding and not enough time physically writing JavaScript. And I was like, are you serious? Like that's your feedback. That's kind of ridiculous in my opinion, because I took, I took 20 minutes out of 40 to actually think through the problem from like a, a pseudo code perspective and fix all the bugs before writing it. That like knocked me down. That's wild. And I think one last thing I want to just um, another tip, a last tip is to think about the edge cases when you're testing. So one, always test your solutions. Think about different inputs and outputs, but also think about the edge cases, like um, different inputs that could be passed that might break it. That's going to be a big one. It'll help you iron out some of the bugs. Definitely. So if you want to learn more, we're going to link some things down in the show notes. When I was studying for technical interviews, Educative was a great platform for me. They have a ton of different like study guide courses. And Hacker Rank was another one. Um, you can definitely go practice your algorithmic coding on, although I will say it's a lot harder. And personally, I don't use Hacker Rank just because I find like the the problems are very I don't know. I personally find them very like mathematics based and like they just don't really drive with me very well. I did read Cracking the Coding Interview, which is the book that everyone recommends. And what I did because I was doing JavaScript based programming was I took their solutions, which I believe are written in Java or C. I can't remember. Um, And I I transcribed them over into JavaScript. So that was a really good um, like practice for me. I did exactly the same thing with Python way back in the day. Yeah, so definitely Cracking the Coding Interview, I think, is a really helpful book. Um, That being said, I think I also want to say that interviews at all companies don't necessarily look like this. Most companies that I have actually interviewed at don't ask these types of data structures and algorithms questions. Some companies do. Um, Like the, the big, big tech companies normally do. And like the unicorns, unicorn startups usually do as well. That being said, most more local companies or early stage startups, I haven't noticed them asking these types of questions as much. This is going to come as a huge surprise, but I don't ask these questions either. (laughs) Yeah, I don't either when I interview people. I don't think they're indicative of a person's future success at a company personally. Like if we could do a whole episode on like how we should hire, maybe that's a great episode to do. Um, We do have a future. I have lots of thoughts on that one. Yeah, well, (laughs) we have a future episode on engineering management coming up, you know, later in the season. And I think maybe we could talk about the hiring process. Um, But yeah, these whiteboarding interviews, unless you have a very seasoned interviewer who understands like how to actually collaborate with someone, they can go horribly wrong. I've had interviews whiteboarding where the interviewer just wanted to trick me or they wanted to show me how smart they were and the questions were not going to be related to my day job. Like as a front end developer, I should not be having to fix a broken binary tree. I think that's ridiculous. Um, these are not things that you would see in the real world. Yeah, agreed. So we're giving you all this education because it's something that we've seen in interviews. I have actually used some of these things on day-to-day basis at work too, but we don't think that this is right. We don't necessarily think that um, companies should ask these types of questions. We're just trying to give you an education so that you can be there to answer those questions if they come up. I also wanted to shout out BCS, which is an incredible series by Vaidehi Joshi, It started off as a series of blog posts that are illustrated. They're incredible. Then it spun into a video series on dev and also a podcast with Saranya Barak from Code Newbie. So definitely shout that out. I think that that is an incredible resource for diving deeper on all these things that we talked about today. I also love doing code challenges with Project Euler and Advent of Code. I like the more mathematical problems. So 
Those are fun for me. And they tend to use these types of data structures and algorithms that we talked about today. So great for practicing those. Awesome. I learned a ton. uh, And I also did not learn a lot because I need to look at the additional resources to really dig in a little bit more to understand. Again, since I have no, you know, background knowledge on a lot of this, it's more about about learning for curiosity's sake as opposed to my next whiteboard interview that's probably never going to happen. Definitely. But to be fair, you probably will never need to know any of this. So yeah. it's yeah. like, you know, pick your battles of, of what to learn. And at, at this point in your career, I would say you have bigger and, and better things to be <laughs> You should see Definitely. like the stack of books that I'm reading. Mainly most of my focus right now is on learning how to be a better manager, business owner, as opposed That's to awesome. these details. So I, I do like how you said stack of books. Oh, ha ha ha. Totally did that intentionally. Awesome. Awesome. Do we want to do a quick round of shout outs? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing I recently retweeted is a blog post called JavaScript Visualized Prototypal Inheritance. So this woman, Lydia Halley, I believe is how you say it. She's been posting like this really awesome blog post on the practical dev and they're all animated and they're all about things JavaScripty, like the JavaScript engine and prototypal inheritance. She does an amazing job. So I'm going to link her article down below. She's definitely someone to watch. Mine's nothing related to this, but Pop Sugar released their 2020 reading challenge uh, checklist, which is basically, I think, like 40, 50 books. I don't remember how many of like different various topics. And it kind of helps you step out of your comfort zone of the books you normally read. Um, so I'm going through that list with one of my friends right now. So definitely worth checking out. Oh, amazing. I'm pulling that up right now. As am I. Allie, what about you? Do you have a shout out? I kind of said this already, but it, it goes with the episode. want to give a huge shout out again to BaseCS, the series by Veda Shiki Joshi. I used it so much when I was trying to learn all of this and self-teach it after uh, really feeling like I couldn't learn these things when I was in college and thought that I had just like wasn't smart enough to learn them. So her series really helped me to learn these things. And so I want to give it a second shout out here. Awesome. Well, cool. I I hope those listening found this episode to be helpful. So let's close this out. If you like this episode, tweet about it. We'd love to get your feedback and we post new episodes every Monday. So make sure you're subscribed to be notified and leave us a review.